This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And away we go. Welcome to the broadcast. I get a lot of email about the uh, the theme song, and uh, maybe I can uh, prevent uh, you from sending an email. If you're wondering what the name of the song is, I get a lot of emails. What's the name of that song? I love the theme song. It's an actual, uh, it's an original composition for The Conspiracy Show. And the composer-performer is uh, with um, an organization or a, uh, a studio called Studio 8. His name is Jeff Eden, E-D-E-N, Jeff Eden. And people are emailing me asking, where can I hear this song? Where can I download it? I believe Jeff has a, an MP3, a downloadable MP3 on his website. at Studio 8. That's the numeral 8. .ca, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, kudos to Jeff Eden, uh, who, who um, appended that or composed that uh, theme song for us. Uh, just looking at uh, some amazing, amazing uh, video footage from uh, NASA. Uh, have you seen this? The, the biggest explosion ever seen on the moon? This uh, meteor impact? Wow, talk about fireworks. I've uh, I, I tweeted that, so if you go to the uh, my Twitter page, go to the website, richardsarrett.com, and uh, if you haven't subscribed... Uh, to my Twitter feed, please do so, at Richard Serrett. And you can see the video of the uh, fireworks on the moon. Now, our little uh, humble fireworks we held this evening, earlier this evening, in celebration of Queen Victoria Day. Not quite as spectacular, perhaps, but we certainly enjoyed it. Certainly the little ones uh, love, uh, love fireworks. They just make me so happy. And uh, the, the children, of course, adore fireworks. Uh, what else is going on in the news I wanted to tell you about? Well, the Pope certainly has had a busy couple of days. Pope Francis I, freshly minted pontiff, warning about the evils of the cult of money. That certainly is true. And uh, I see where he was visiting with uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, asking for more, uh, I guess, regulation, financial reforms. And then, just uh, a few hours ago, calling for renewal in the Catholic Church as he wrapped up two days of mass gatherings in St. Peter's Square, aimed at energizing the faithful. Renewal in the Catholic Church is interesting because 
There are those who argue that the end is nigh for the Catholic Church, certainly for the Pope. In fact, they argue, including my next guest, that Pope Francis I will be the final Pope. And all of this was predicted by St. Malachi going back 900 years ago. Malachi, writing in Prophecy of the Popes, said that the final pontiff would be Peter the Roman, and his reign would end with the destruction of Rome and judgment. The prophecies, first published in 1595, were attributed, as I say, to St. Malachi by Benedictine historian Arnold de Wyon, who recorded them in his book Lignum Vitae. And a tradition holds that Malachi has been called to Rome by Pope Innocent II. While there, he experienced a vision of the future popes, including the last one, which he wrote down in a series of cryptic phrases. According to the prophecy, the next pope is to be the final pontiff, Petrus Romanus, or Peter the Roman. Some Catholics believe that the next pope on, uh, uh, will basically herald the beginning of the great apostasy, followed by... Great, the Great Tribulation, setting the stage for the imminent unfolding of apocalyptic events, something many non-Catholics might agree with. And here to explain more is the co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope Is Here, Chris Putnam. Chris has a diverse range of interests and life experiences. After earning a music scholarship and studying classical guitar, he performed in various venues with musical theater ensembles and taught lessons. After living the lifestyle of a starving artist, he changed focus to the computer industry and worked for a major technology company implementing encryption protocols and login tools. In his late 30s, he came to the end of himself and turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Since then, his interest in the Bible and theology has driven him to serious study. He earned a Master's of Arts degree in Theological Studies from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary in 2011, in addition to his Bachelor of Science in Religion and Mathematics. As well as his involvement in book projects, he's now pursuing postgraduate studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a member of Providence Baptist Church, where he performs regularly with the Praise Band. He's a member of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and the Tau Sigma National Honor Society. His website is www.logosapologia.org. The mission of Logos Apologia is to show that logic, science, history, and faith are complementary, not contradictory, and to bring that life-changing truth to everybody who wants to know. Chris Putnam, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, it's great to be on The Conspiracy Show with you tonight. And, and we should mention your co-author, of course, Tom Horn. Uh, together, the two of you wrote, Petrus Romanus, the final pope is here. So why don't we start, first of all, give us a, a sense of who St. Malachi was. Well, you know, he was the first Irish saint, so he's the, the first person from Ireland to be made a saint. Um, you know, he, he was um, known as a, a reformer, you know, you're talking about the, the, the 12th century, so you're really, it's really like right as the, the church and really the, the world is kind of coming, and, and Europe is coming out of the Dark Ages, you know, the, this kind of a period really where the papacy had kind of gotten pretty corrupted, and uh, we cover some of that history in the book. But at this point, you know, they were trying to turn somewhat of a new leaf, and um, Malachi was trying to straighten out Ireland, and he actually made a pilgrimage to Rome to see the Pope 
about you know getting some new diocese approved and some various church business. But it was on that trip to Rome in, in 1135 A.D. that uh, is when he, according to legend, had this vision where he uh, saw 112 popes into the future from his day. And uh, that is what you described as the famous prophecy of the popes there at the, at the beginning of the show. And, and some of these prophecies are, well, many of them, and you would contend after 1595, you would focus on those that, that the popes that uh, came after 1595. Uh, just give us some examples of the accuracy. I understand that he, he utilized, obviously he didn't name them by name, but he used uh, mottos, which, which popes uh, often have. They have coat of arms and, and things like that. Give us some examples of St. Malachi's uh, uh, accuracy in predicting the names or the identities of the various popes. Well, sure, and you know, just to clarify, you know, you, you said you know the ones after 1595, and, and and you know the reason to do that, of course, is that this between the time that he allegedly you know delivered this prophecy and it was written down in the 12th century, and when we can actually prove that you know that we have a copy of it, there's a, there's a big gap of time missing there. So, you know, one of the criticisms a lot of the skeptics, you know, even Catholic scholars who are skeptical about this thing, will point out that it looks like somebody cooked the books in that interloping period between when he gave it and the and the uh, publishing date. So, really, just to kind of brush those arguments aside, you know, you really only need to look at the ones after we can prove it was published and widely disseminated. So, you know, I kind of just sidestep that whole debate, and, and I do explain that debate in some detail in the book, but like you said, you know, the, the thing that is important to me is, is this a real prophecy? Does it have any evidence that it really does predict the future? And you know, it's widely distributed in 1595, so nobody disputes that as an anchor point. Then, you know, if you look at some of the fulfillments are, are pretty compelling. Um, the one that really captured my attention the most was actually the one for Benedict the Fifteenth. Now, he was Pope from 1914 to 1922, and the, the little Latin motto that was assigned to him in the sequence, it said, Religio de Populata. Now, that just means religion depopulated. Now, this is the kind of prediction that it kind of stands out on the list, to be honest with you, because it's, it's a falsifiable kind of claim. You know, religion depopulated, that's kind of a risky prediction. Um, you know, his reign could have been marked by a revival in the church, or, you know, all things being equal, you just expect things to kind of remain about the same. It might go up a little or a little down a little bit. Religion depopulated, you know, that's, that's pretty bold. Yeah, he's going out on a limb there, for sure. It is, and, you know, and that's kind of the way you would test something like this, and, you know, in remarkable fulfillment, really remarkable to me, uh, 1914 to 1922, is when the Bolshevik Revolution broke out in Russia. And, you know, historians will say 200 million people left the church there because, you know, uh, Lenin and Stalin targeted the churches and the religious leaders, and they even bulldozed them, and there's films of them using wrecking balls knocking churches down because they saw religion as something that would, you know, cause people to stand up to the state, you know, with a communist totalitarian regime. That's the sort of thing they wanted to get rid of, so they did. That was the Orthodox um, Church, was it not? The Russian Orthodox Church? It, it was Church. both. It was all churches. Okay. But, you know, you, you know the, here we have this prediction, religion is populated, so you have the Bolshevik Revolution, but also this is the, the time when World War I breaks out. 
which is devastating to Europe and the church as well. So, you know, it really does appear to be a pretty good match because, you know, just to me, the whole rise of militant communism, you know, really, they really did uh, try to um, enforce atheism. And, you know, there's lots of testimonies to that end. Um, Richard Von Brown, who's the guy who started the charity called Voice of the Martyrs, if you've ever heard his testimony, that they would torture him and try to, to force him to say God didn't exist and things like this. Uh, it, it, it really does seem to be a very compelling match for that one. Um, now, you know, some of the other ones, a lot of them uh, seem to match heraldry. Now, in uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, heraldry is like the coat of arms, and it's kind of an art and a science, and they have rules and certain symbols mean certain things, but a lot of these phrases seem to match the heraldry of particular popes. One of the ones that uh, is really a, a, like a dead ringer in recent history is Paul VI, who was the pope in 1963 to 1978, and the, the Latin phrase for him was flos florum, which means flower of flowers. Now, his coat of arms has three what you call fleur de lis, which is a a heraldic device of the French monarchy, and it, it literally means in French, flower of the lily. So you have these three little yellow flower things, um, which matches flower of flower quite well. Yes, so, and again, we should and remind, reminding listeners that, that this is St. Malachi writing in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we can prove that it was published in 1595, so here, you know, here we are, you know, 400 years later, and... Um, you know, the thing that, the first thing I thought, though, was what if, you know, maybe these popes or, or cardinals who are thinking that they might have aspirations to be pope, maybe they're aware of this prophecy and... Ah, uh, the self-fulfilling you know, prophecy. That's a great point. Yeah, Listen, think, Chris... Well, yeah, let's, let's, maybe I'll pick my coat of arms and make it match the next one on the list in let's that ex- way. Let's explore that so, when we come back, Chris. We'll take a time okay. out. We'll come back. Chris yeah. Putnam, co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. In uh, Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here, co-authors Tom Horn and Chris Putnam. Chris joins us on the line. Uh, They examine St. Malachi's prophecy of the Pope said to be based on his prophetic vision of the next 112 popes, beginning with Pope Celestine II, who died in 1144. Malachi presented a description of each pope culminating with the final pope, Peter the Roman, whose reign, it is said, would end with the destruction of Rome and judgment. Chris Putnam, as I say, is uh, with us, co-author, and uh, we'll eventually get around to discussing how Pope Francis I fits fits into that prophecy, keeping in mind again that uh, Malachi said the final pope would be Petrus Romanus. Right now, though, we're we're discussing how St. Malachi's uh, prophecies of the various popes uh, seem to come true, and and you were talking about uh, Pope Paul VI, uh, and um, let's can we talk about uh, a little bit about Pope John Paul the first? This was a, this is also a fascinating one, which I believe has to do with the is it the the um, the lunar the lunar eclipse? That's right. Yeah, you know, I'll just finish off the the thought with Paul the six. All, all I was going to say there at the end was, you know, you know, I, I did want to kind of debunk the idea that maybe they just picked it to match the right. prophecy. Right. Yes. Well, thank you. The self fulfilling rules. There are rules in um, heraldry for, for these guys, and you have to have your coat of arms in place by the time that you're made a bishop. 
And that's, for most of these guys, that's long before they're even a candidate to be a pope. So you literally have to anticipate it 20, 30 years ahead in your career, which doesn't really seem likely because you'd have to know when the next pope was going to die and, you know, when you would be in the sequence. That's an excellent but point. It, so to cover their bets, all of the bishops thinking one day I might be cardinal and then I might be pope, right. they would all have a floor de lis as part right. of their coat of it arms. Would be ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I don't think that that can explain it away. Yeah, like you said, John Paul I. Now, he, he's interesting because he only lived as Pope for 33 days. And, and there's a lot of people that think he was poisoned. In fact, um, the Jesuit uh, the, who kind of left the Jesuit order to write books, Father Malachi Martin, uh, he actually said that John Paul I was poisoned because he was going to expose a bunch of high-ranking Vatican officials who were Freemasons. Um, and this was all tangled up with some skullduggery at the Vatican Bank, and oh, a lot of things happened back around that time. This was in 1978. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but we have a new book out called Exo Vaticana, which kind of covers the Vatican strange interest in extraterrestrials. Ah, yes, um, they have that huge uh, telescope down, I mm-hmm. believe, is it in Tucson or uh, it, Arizona? It's that? Outside, right outside of Tucson. I actually visited it last fall. It's, it's on Mount Graham uh, near Safford, Arizona, little town. And yeah, I, me, me and my co-author Tom Horn toured that facility. But the reason why I mentioned that is, well, let me, let's just talk about John Paul I, like he said. So he from the midst of the moon was his Malachi prophecy. Um, now, what kind of makes it a, a, a fulfillment is that the day that he became the Pope was actually a half moon. I mean, it was a perfect half moon. And then, you know, he, he only lives 33 days. And, and, you know, so he was also from the Diocese of Belluno. Well, in Latin, that would translate to beautiful moon, bell, beautiful, luno, moon. So, you know, he actually came from an area called the Beautiful Moon. He ascended the papacy on the precise day of a half moon. So that corresponds pretty nicely to the midst of the moon. Um, but what's really strange is this: this year, 1978, um, was the, the famous year of three popes. So Paul VI, the one we were just talking about, dies. They elect John Paul I. Uh, he becomes pope right on the half moon, as we said. Um, he's only pope for like 33 days. Right in the middle of that 33 days, there was a massive UFO flap over Rome. Um, and this is really well documented. It's not just the sort of thing that you know, we just went hunting for. In fact, when we wrote the book, Petrus Romanus, I didn't have any idea about the, the UFO incident. But um, when we, we started uh, researching Exo Vaticana, I, you know, one of the things I, I tried to do was just, let's just research you know, UFO sightings over Rome and see if there's any pattern or any, you know, suggestive sort of timing. Well, it's a, this was the most amazing thing because this is like a, having three popes in one calendar year is pretty unprecedented. But the UFO sightings over Rome this year were so widespread and so well documented that it's just incredible. There's really been no other time like it in history. In fact, it made the New York Times in America in 1978. Um, and that, which is interesting, up. because if you flash ahead uh, about thirty years, you had that interesting um, uh, announcement by the chief astro- Vatican astronomer at the the um, the observatory you just mentioned near Tucson, saying, mm-hmm. I, or I believe he's the chief astronomer who issued this statement, saying it's okay for Catholics to believe in ET. 
Yeah, that was actually, he, he delivered that from Rome. Uh, it was by uh, Father Jose Funes. And he's an important character uh, in the second book, Exo Vaticana. Uh, he is the leader now of the Vatican Observatory Research Group. And he actually um, issued a document that was uh, posted in Latin and in English called The Extraterrestrial Is My Brother. Um, so he went quite a bit further than just saying it's okay to believe in him. I mean, they've, you know, you could look, you know, one of the things that I challenge listeners to do who kind of think that I'm really getting out on a limb when we start talking about the UFOs and the alien thing, well, you know, this is the stuff that they're talking about. You know, our readers who had read Petrus Romanus were asking us these questions, well, what do you make of all these statements that the Vatican's making about that? So it's really their own language. Um, what I would challenge listeners to do that just kind of think this is just going too far is just type in in your favorite search engine and type baptize extraterrestrial and hit search and, and you'll get hundreds of hits and they'll all be interviews with Jesuit astronomers from what they call the Vatican Observatory Research Group and the acronym is VORG so I had a little bit of fun with that. Well, this is a this is a actually a, a great sort of little uh, a preview because Chris, I'd like to have you and maybe Tom back on and we can talk about the new book. Uh, sure. I sort of got you a little bit sidetracked, although it was certainly okay. worth it was worth the side journey. Thank you for that. But let's get back to. Uh, okay. Can we move on to Pope John Paul II? Sure. Uh, because I believe the motto there has something to do with the labor of the sun. Yeah. So yeah. So as soon as he's you know as John Paul dies, they. They actually they, they, um, embalmed his body like within 24 hours, which a lot of people thought was very suspicious and maybe evidence of that some kind of hanky-panky went on. So then John Paul II is elected, and of course he's the famous pope that everyone remembers. Now his motto was from the labor of the sun. Now this one is, is even more compelling in a lot of ways. He was... Uh, you know, a lot of people would interpret labor of the sun perhaps as eclipse of the sun. Um, so he was actually born on May 18, 1920, during a partial solar eclipse. Um, and then to kind of top that off, it turns out that he was buried during a hybrid eclipse as well. So from the labor of the sun, um, it's a lot of people think that, you know, that is the, the fulfillment of that prophecy, the, the eclipse is associated with his wow. birth and, and burial. And it, again, it bears repeating for those just joining us. The, this was a prophecy made by St. Malachi 900 years ago. Mm-hmm. All right, so and, th- that's... Uh, so, you know, those are, are pretty interesting. Now, you know, the, the other thing, you know, like we talked about, could this be a self-fulfilling prophecy? Well, my co-author Tom Horn tends to think that, you know, a lot of times it is, and there is evidence that there have been several popes who seem to have gone out of their way to claim this thing for themselves or to make it fit. Now, one of those will just be going back in time. Like, we started with Paul VI. If we just go back to the pope before him, it was Pius XII. Um, and, you know, this is one of the prophecies that, you know, I think it would be fair to say it was kind of vague, you know, when you, when you hear it. His was Pastor Angelicus, uh, which... It's just Latin. It just means angelic shepherd or angelic pastor. Now, you know, that seems like that's pretty vague. It would be easy for any pope to kind of claim that one. But that's exactly what happened. Um, He not only claimed it of himself, uh, this was during World War II. You know, and he got criticized as being Hitler's pope in a book by John Cromwell. Um, And so there's some 
controversy over whether he was kind of complicit or whether he didn't say enough about the uh, the Holocaust and all that. But you know, the thing that's really interesting though is that he actually produced a propaganda film about himself and titled it and and Pastor Angelicus. That was like the name of the film, and it even said how. You know, Pope Pius XII characterizes the day in the life of the St. Malachi prophecy. <laughs> and so he literally applied it to himself and produced a documentary film about himself and named it after his Malachi motto. Now, you know, why is that such a big deal? Well, it, you know, it is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Whether, you know, he made it happen or not, it still counts because, you know, when you look at the sequence, some of these, you know, people couldn't manipulate, like the one we started with, Benedict Sixteenth. You know, religion depopulated. That really couldn't have been manipulated by a pope. But then you have this one, and this was obviously one that was, but it's still fulfillment. And the thing that makes it uh, important is that there are Jesuits and, and Catholic scholars who try to poo-poo this prophecy and, and distance themselves from it and say, oh, we think this is just a forgery and we don't really take it seriously. Well, it's really hard for them to say that with a straight face when they have one of their popes, you know, who is an infallible leader of the church by their own doctrine, who specifically claimed it of himself. He right. certainly tried to distance it from him. He actually claimed it. Now, interestingly, I think you could say the same about the pope just previous to Francis, uh, Pope Benedict Sixteenth. The glory of the olive. The glory of the olive. Now, because of that prophecy... Many people, and especially the Catholics, who really, there are a lot of Catholics that pay attention to this prophecy who have been believing it for many years. And they would try, typically, to predict who the next papal candidate is going to be based on the motto. Now, interestingly, you know, they look at glory of the olive. Well, the olive branch is a symbol of the Benedictine monastic order. So for that reason... You know, a lot of the Catholics that, that put a lot of stock in the prophecy were watching for a Benedictine monk to be elected pope. Now, when Cardinal Ratzinger from Germany uh, got the nod, they were kind of shocked because he was not a Benedictine monk. Um, but, you know, the pope gets to pick his papal name. You know, he was Joseph Ratzinger, a cardinal, and he picked the name Benedict which is another there you instance go. of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It would seem so. I mean, are there, are there other, possi- other possible uh, explanations be- behind the glory of the olive, aside from the fact that it was sort of the symbol of the Benedictines? Well, sure. Um, well, one of the ones, I mean, a lot of people have kind of pointed to this idea that, you know, okay, this is the next to the, he was the next to the last pope on, on the list. Now, interestingly... Jesus gave us a, a prophetic discourse on the end times. It happens to be in Matthew chapter 24. Um, some of it is in Luke 21. Um, and some of it is in Mark chapter 13 in the Gospels. It was kind of his discourse on the way things would be going uh, near the time of his return, which, of course, would ensue the end times and the events in the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Now, because of that, it's called the Olivet Discourse, because it was given on the Mount of Olives um, outside of Jerusalem. Well, 
some people associated this phrase, glory of the olive, with the Olivet Discourse, and being that the sequence of the prophecy has it as the next to the last, Jesus talked about in that discourse um, what he called birth pains of the end times. Now, this is the kind of a phrase that you're probably familiar with. He'd say things like wars and rumors of wars, um, earthquakes and famines. Um, and so that we would see these things coming as signs. Now, he said, these aren't the signs that the end is here, but they are a sign that it's coming, it's near. They're like birth pains. You know, if you kind of think of the analogy, uh, the way birth pains work is they come closer and closer together, you know, and then the water breaks and, and boom, you know, it's on. Um, so a lot of prophetic scholars have been paying attention. And, you know, it's probably true that in the 20th century, you've had the, the greatest wars and, and the most bloodshed in world history. Just I, I think anybody who's paying attention to the news these days, looking at the headlines, could safely argue the water has broke. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the earthquakes really have seemed to increase just in the last few years. I mean, I really have never seen anything like what we've seen. We had that huge one in Haiti, uh, the, the, the one in Japan with the nuclear reactor and all that, and then we had a massive one in Chile. Um, there's just been a lot um, of, of weather-related events and earthquakes. And, you know, I would say that those birth names have, have gotten really close together. And, yeah, most of the people that I know that follow... Bible prophecy uh, would it concur with that assessment. Well, uh, Chris Putnam is with us, co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. And we're just, about going into, we're just about to go into a break, but we can at least get this conversation rolling now. And that is something remarkable about your book is you and, and, and Tom Horn in the book actually predicted that Pope Benedict would resign, uh, obviously before the fact. Um, we are. Uh, I just hear the music, you know, creeping up now. So we'll we'll, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, let's talk about how you arrived at that prediction, and then we'll move on into uh, the selection of Pope Francis the First, and how that fits with Saint Malachi's prophecy. The last pope would be Petrus Romanus, Peter the Roman. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with Chris Putnam, co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. Chris Putnam stays with us for a few moments yet discussing his new book, which he co-authored with Tom Horn, Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here. Now, uh, just a remarkable prediction that you made in that book. Obviously, it was published well before the actual event, and that was the the, um, resignation of Pope Benedict, which was, I believe, the first pope to resign in 600 years. Now, how were you able to make that prediction? Well, you know, I I don't like to try to claim any sort of prophetic powers or anything for myself. Um, It was actually based on this prophecy and some of the research that I did and, and rumors that were coming out of Italy. Now, just to explain, you know, when I first set out to investigate this Malachi prophecy, I really wasn't predisposed to believing extra-biblical Catholic prophecies or anything. I, you know, I'm a believer in, in the biblical uh, prophecies, and that was kind of my point of interest, because I saw the intersection between the ending of this and, and the prophecies in the book of Revelation and, and the ones that we spoke of in the Olivet Discourse and whatnot. But, so I read a lot of books about this Malachi prophecy. Now, a lot of these are written by various Catholic scholars over the years. Now, one of the more interesting ones was a book written in French 
by a Belgian Jesuit named René Thibault. Now, he published this book called The Mysterious Prophecy of the Popes in 1951. Um, and I actually found it at a university library, and they brought it up from the basement. I don't think anybody had looked at it in 20 or 30 years. And uh, so I had to translate it from French. Now, the thing that was just incredible is that he, in, he predicted the arrival of the final pope on the list in the year 2012. Um, and he didn't just do that kind of in a trivial manner. He did it all throughout the book, and it was like a big feature of the book. In fact, he found like just these fanciful encryption codes uh, within the Latin text of the prophecy. He did all these kind of mystical calculations, and he kept landing on April 2012 as the arrival of Petrus Romanus. Now, you know, you have to imagine at the time, this was probably December or January, or maybe January 2012, or probably December when I first got this book and found this information, and we're trying to get the book out by maybe March of 2012. And like, so we started rushing just to get the book published because nobody would believe us if it really happened if we didn't get it out in time. So we literally, you know, really put the rush on to get the book out by April of 2012 when he said that this would happen. Well, there was also rumors uh, from the Vatican Insider, which is a magazine in Italy, that Pope Benedict's health was not too good, and so they were speculating that maybe he would retire for that reason. And you know, so we just kind of put two and two together in the book, and we said, well, you know, if this Belgian Jesuit is right, um, then we would expect that Pope Benedict will step down for health reasons in April of 2012. You know, and we said, well, you know, any time in the year 2012 would be a pretty incredible uh, prediction, given that he wrote this down probably in 1950. Um, well, of course, the year 2012 came and went, but it, you know, it really made our book kind of sensational, because everybody was already thinking apocalyptically with the Mayan calendar and, and all this 2012 stuff. But you know, what would what, what a Jesuit writing in 1950 have you know, 2012 wasn't on the radar when he, when he wrote that. Uh, he had no, you know, no reason to pick the year 2012 other than he really thought it would be. So, you know, a lot of people would say, well, 2012 came and went, it didn't happen, right? Well, it actually turns out that, that he was pretty dead on right. Now, here's why. When Pope Benedict did step down this year, it was February 11th, 2013, I believe, I remember it pretty well because it kind of changed everything for us. Uh, we had kind of given up on Rene Thibault and his 2012 prediction, but the day that Benedict made his announcement, of course, lightning struck St. Peter's Basilica. That was pretty... That was absolutely astounding. That was spectacular. But um, even more spectacular for, for this prediction um, was that in the New York Times that very day, there was a, a little little part of the paragraph, I got it right here in front of me actually, it says, that the resignation was long in the planning was confirmed by the editor of the Vatican newspaper who wrote on Monday that the Pope's decision, quote, was taken many months ago after his trip to Mexico and Cuba in March of 2012, end quote, and kept with, no, and kept with the reserve no one could violate, end quote. So literally, when he did a little South American tour in March of 2012, when he got back from that, that was the end of March, he told a select group of his friends that he was stepping down. Now, if he had followed suit right when he said that, that would have been April 2012, right when this guy said it in 1950. 
Um, That's pretty, pretty scary. Incredible. Yeah. So that yeah, the, it's clear. Then the decision was made in 2012. So yeah. officially, he he stepped down in 2013. But the decision was made exactly was. as uh, as the Jesuit priest indicated. Now, Chris, obviously, the, the your book came out before Pope Francis uh, was uh, named Pope, uh, and you had your own list of of uh, sort of you know ten possible candidates to succeed right. Benedict, which would fit the. The, the, the prophecy of the popes, meaning that the final pope had to be Peter the Roman. And, and one of those was uh, a cardinal uh, Tarsicio Pietro Avasio Bertoni, the cardinal uh, secretary of state. Uh-huh. Obviously, that didn't happen, but that would have fit Peter the Roman. But when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about some of the others that might have fit nicely with, with Petrus Romanus. Uh, And then I'll get you to explain why Pope Francis I still might be a fulfillment of the prophecy of St. Malachi. Back with my conversation with Chris Putnam here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't you dare go away. Welcome back. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name. S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. And uh, we've got Chris D. Putnam with us, the co-author of Petrus Romanus, The Final Pope is Here, co-authored along with uh, Tom Horn. And uh, I want you to explain how a number of popes that you listed in your book might have fit in nicely with St. Malachi's uh, prophecy. Well, you know, the main guy that, that seemed to be really compelling at the time was the one that you mentioned right before we went to the break, Tarsicio Bertoni. He was the number two in charge. He's the Secretary of State for Benedict XVI. Now, you know, the really obvious thing is that his middle name was Pieretto, and he was an Italian from Rome, so he would quite literally have matched that Peter the Roman title. But, you know, just you know, right off the bat, though, one of the things that we also said in the book right, you know, all along was that, um, you know, all popes claim to be the next Peter in line. Uh, The claim to the authority of the papacy is apostolic succession from the Apostle Peter. So they even call the papacy the Petrine office, where they turn the name Peter into an adjective, Petrine. So, you know, they all claim to be a Peter in in, in that sense. And it's also, also very, very unlikely that any pope would name himself Peter because that exactly. would just be the height of, of hubris. Right, exactly. Um, and so, for that reason, I mean, if you look at what other scholars have written over the years, for instance, Rene Thibault, who wrote the book in 1950, what did he think of it? He thought the title Peter the Roman meant, was a symbol that meant that this final pope would um, encompass all of the papacy. So he really saw it as the final pope would be such a compelling character that he would somehow have the personality of, the, of every pope in the whole succession of, of the office. Uh, so he kind of saw it that way. Um, you know, so, you know, they are, they, they are a claim to the successor of Peter, and they're the leader of the Roman Church. So it could be just as simple as that, um, as a symbolic title. And, and, you know, that's kind of the way that I'm choosing to look at it now. There are people who have um, looked at Pope Francis and uh, have found that, you know, if you look at the long version of his name, his father's name was Pieto. So 
in the middle of his name, there is a period, like uh, St. Francis of Assisi, I'm sorry. So what pe some people have done is he, t he chose the name Francis. Francis of Assisi has a, has a Pieto in his middle name. Now, I kind of think that that's just kind of pushing the literalism too far. Um, I, for me, that's not necessary. Some people are choosing to look at that as the way it, it, it matches Francis because he chose the name Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi has Pieto in his middle name. But, you know, I, if you look at the, the rest of the prophecy, just the ones that we talked about, none of them really tried to give a literal name for any of the popes. Um, they're, they're all symbolic, um, like glory of the olive or flower right. of flowers. I mean, they're all, they're all symbols, and, and they either match an event during the papacy or, they, or something about the coat of arms or some kind of descriptor. And, you know, they're pretty metaphorical and like that. So to me, to try to press it to be literal for the final pope is to kind of decontextualize the prophecy, because it really didn't yeah, do that. That's I mean, an excellent it, point. It, it, yeah. Did, did Malachi, I, I though— I think it's necessary. No. Did he leave other clues, though? Did he mention a, a, another motto or, a, or a, a heraldry for Francis I, or was it simply uh, Petrus Romanus, and that was the be-all and the end-all? Uh, okay. Well, you know, the final pope, the, the prophecy for the final pope is quite a bit different than the rest of the list. Um, the, the one for the final pope is a little paragraph. It's not a little phrase. It says, in the extreme persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will nurse the sheep in many tribulations, and when they are finished, the city of seven hills will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people the end. So that's the prophecy for our current pope. Now, to me, the way that we find out that this one is fulfilled is if those events happen. And, you know, if they don't, you know, if his papacy ends and they elect another pope and Rome isn't destroyed and, you know, the tribulation doesn't start, then, okay, it's false. Um, you know, some people are, are, you know, expected that it would literally be somebody named Peter and blah, 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 and so they're thinking, well, it's not true now. But, I mean, I don't think you can say that until, you know, his papacy ends with kind of uneventfully. Um, you, so, you talked about the, the, uh, you know, the, the persecution of or the tribulations in the Church. It's interesting, not too long ago, the chief exorcist for the Vatican uh, said that the devil is loose inside the Vatican. Satan is loose. Oh. And now, the, the, the chief exorcist, for, the, for those who might say, well... Exorcism that you know that belongs back in the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, but but uh, Pope Benedict uh, was a was a firm believer in the right of exorcism, and 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 uh, I believe uh, you know gave a lot of credence to this particular individual. What, what did you make of that statement? Well, he wasn't the only one. Um, Malachi Martin also said very similar things. In fact, he took it a little bit further. Uh, but, you know, I absolutely do believe in a literal, personal Satan who is the enemy of the Church of Christ. I think he is really the enemy of human beings. Um, he, the Bible describes him as the little g God of this world. Now, people that aren't familiar with biblical theology might be a little shocked about that, but yes, that's in the letter that Paul wrote to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The God of this world blinds the minds of unbelievers. Um, so literally, the Bible teaches that we're kind of in a matrix. 
um, that there really is a, a an illusory worldview going on. And you know, and I've written about that extensively. But um, you know, I think that a lot of that has infiltrated some of the high levels of the Vatican. Um, you know, we I touched on it a little bit when we talked about John Paul the first and how a lot of people think he was poisoned for maybe exposing some Freemasons that had infiltrated the Vatican hierarchy. Well, Father Malachi Martin uh, wrote that there was organized Satan worship in the high levels of the Vatican, going on in Rome within the Vatican. In fact, he wrote that they did a ritual in 1963 called the Enthronement of the Fallen Archangel Lucifer. Now, just so your, your listeners are clear on this, the guy that I'm quoting for this information was a Jesuit priest. He was an advisor to three popes. He was in Rome, an advisor to Paul VI and John the Twenty-Third. Um, so he was there, and he had three PhDs. He was a very high-level and respected insider in the Vatican. So I'm not. This isn't just some kind of loopy uh, conspiracy theory. This is kind of a whistleblower. Um, and Malachi Martin died in 1999. He was working on a book about how the Vatican had been absorbed into the New World Order, and he took a tumble down some stairs and died in the hospital shortly after. Now, some people think that maybe he was pushed, because that book never got written. But he did write about this uh, Satanism infiltrating the Vatican. He even quoted Paul VI, the Pope that we talked about, has had even made a statement that... Um, you know, the smoke of Satan has entered the sanctuary. And that's pretty much a direct quote. Um, I'm quoting it from memory, but it was just, I think that was pretty accurate. Right. Um, if, so, if uh, Chris, we just, and we just have a few moments uh, left, three or four minutes, but if, in fact, uh, Francis I is the final pope, how do you see events unfolding from here? Okay. Well, the thing that makes Francis really interesting is that he's the first Jesuit pope in history. Now, this is unprecedented. Now, Malachi Martin, the first book that he wrote when he got a release from his vows was an expose of the Jesuit order, the order that he was in, that he had just left. Now, he thought that they were undermining uh, the theology of the Church, and he wrote uh, in his book, The Jesuits, there's a war between the Jesuit order and the papacy. And he saw that kind of liberal, modernist, communism kind of ideas were infiltrating the Church through the Jesuit order. Now, if there was a war between the Jesuit order and the papacy, you know, when he's talking about this like 20 years ago, now today we have the first Jesuit pope, that tells me the war's over and the Jesuits won. How do I see this playing out? Well, that's kind of where we go to our second book. Um, they have made a lot of really controversial statements about outer space, about extraterrestrials. Pope Francis has a master's degree in chemistry. He started his career thinking about being a scientist, then he went into the Jesuit order. Um, how would we connect these two books, Exo Vaticana and Petrus Romanus? Well, when we turned in the manuscript for Exo Vaticana, we didn't know who the new pope was going to be. But it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, the leader of the Vatican Observatory Research Group is Jose Funes. He happens to be from Argentina. He is the, the leader of the, of the observatory group, and guess who brought him into the Jesuit order? Cardinal Bergoglio. Pope Francis brought in the leader of the Vatican Observatory Research Group as a neophyte. Ah, that um, I did not know. That's interesting. Yeah, that was one of the things I uncovered after the fact, and you just can't make it up. So there's a very intimate connection 
between Pope Francis and Jose Funes, who wrote this essay, The Extraterrestrial is My Brother. Now, you know, one of the things that, that our hypothesis in the second book is that for a lot of these events in Bible prophecy to happen in very short order, you know, if they're going to happen in the next few years, like really fast, there's going to have to be some kind of unprecedented paradigm-changing event. And, you know, we think that the world is really poised for something like an alien disclosure type event, and we think that that would probably be the catalyst that would kind of bring the world together and set up maybe a one-world religion and the sorts of things that Bible prophecy talks about. So that's kind of our working hypothesis. Well, that's funny, uh, or not not funny. It's 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 interesting. Um, you know, we're doing this show on the heels of the uh, citizens' hearing on disclosure, just wrapped up recently in Washington D.C. Uh-huh. Uh, before a panel of five former members of Congress, uh, right. all of whom, many of them, were skeptics, but uh, all essentially those that were able uh, signed on to. Uh, you know, this announcement wanting to press the United Nations for, you know, further hearings and more investigations and so forth. So, uh, it, it, you know, the, the parallel there is, is quite uh, quite interesting. Yeah, the timing is, is quite fortuitous, and some of the testimony really does coincide with the things that we wrote in Exo-Vatican. In fact, Daniel Sheehan was one of the witnesses, uh, a pretty high-ranking attorney. He was the lead counsel for the Jesuit order, he actually tried to subpoena the Vatican UFO records for President Carter and was refused twice. So when they say they don't have any UFO secrets, they are definitely keeping some secrets. That's fascinating. Well, it is rumored that the Archbishop of, Archbishop of Los Angeles was present present with President Eisenhower during this secret meeting with several uh, races of, yeah, uh, of ETs. Yeah, I've Listen, uh, Chris, this has been fascinating. Uh, I hope that uh, you'll come on and, and perhaps we can get Tom Horn, your co-author, uh, come on uh, back again maybe later on in the summer and we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, the second book. Are you good for that? Yeah, that sounds good. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Chris. Okay. Chris, My pleasure. Chris Putnam. Say hello on Twitter again, at Richard Serrett, and your portal into The Conspiracy Show. The website is www.richardserrett.com.
Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, welcome aboard. Glad to have you with us. Hello to all my U.S. affiliates from Anchorage, Alaska, down to Asheville, North Carolina. For those of you listening online at zoomerradio.ca and those of you listening closer to home here in the greater Toronto area, coming to you live from Liberty Village, a neighborhood just north of the Grand Old Lady by the Lake, the Canadian National Exhibition. This is a great neighborhood. And I'm just thinking, you know, here we are in Liberty Village and uh, we are located on Jefferson Avenue. Now, if I was an American, I would say, wow, what a great connection. But I'm not – I have to look into the history of this neighborhood. Liberty Avenue, Jefferson – well, whatever. We, we certainly uh, – we, we hold liberty uh, and freedom very, very close to our hearts uh, here on this radio program. And, of course, today – you know, it was a, a, actually a week ago, a week ago when I was doing this show, we had snow. Earlier in the day, we had hail that turned into snow. Do you remember that, Tim? Uh, But today, wow, what a glorious day. I hope wherever you are, the weather is favorable. You're getting outside, enjoying yourself. We had a a bunch of people over at the house, barbecue, and of course, earlier this evening, fireworks up here in Canada. We uh, we celebrate the birth of Queen Victoria, uh, who presided over an empire some 40 square miles. She was a, a tiny lady, like barely five foot if you can believe it, barely five foot, but of course survived to, uh, to reign more than 60 years. I think it was 64 or 65 years on the throne. Unbelievable. And, and uh, about a year ago around this time, there was a, a new book that came out uh, which alleged that Queen Victoria, of course, who was in you know, a mourning for, for decades over her royal consort, Prince Albert, uh, the book rumored that she actually married... John Brown. You may remember that film that came out a few years ago called Mrs. Brown. But in fact, I mean, that may be true. I don't know. I haven't looked into it. Perhaps we'll do a show on that, whether or not she married her uh, hard-drinking friend. But there's another rumor that the actual secret may have been even more controversial, and that was that John Brown was her medium and that Queen Victoria was a member of the spiritualist movement. Now, keep in mind, that would be very controversial, late 19th century England, if the queen, the head of the Church of England, was involved in seances and so forth. So maybe that's the scandal. Maybe that's the dark secret. We're going to talk about life after death with my next guest. I just watched this film this afternoon, and it's a good one. Be on the lookout for it. It's called The Life After Death Project, a great documentary. It says here on the front cover, it certainly is, on a timeless theme, scientific evidence for life after death. It's also the first paranormal biography, the afterlife story of Forrest J. Ackerman, a founding father of Hollywood science fiction who refuses to rest in peace and joining us on the line is Paul Davids, an award-winning documentary filmmaker whose films include The Sci-Fi Boys and Jesus in India. He's also known for executive producing and co-writing Showtime's original TV movie, Roswell, which was nominated for a Golden Globe as Best Motion Picture for Television. Paul Davids, a great delight to have you aboard here on The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you. I'm very good. I think I count as one of your American affiliates. You do. (laughs) 
uh, the Life After Death Project. First of all, congratulations on uh, on this uh, documentary. And uh, first of all, for those not familiar with, uh, I mean, there's a lot more here. It's not just about the uh, the afterlife story of Forrest J. Ackerman, although he certainly looms large in this film. Explain to those not familiar with Forrest J. Ackerman, who was he? He was one of the forefathers of contemporary science fiction in film and literature. He was born in 1916 and grew up through the silent era. <clears throat> and he was one of the first major promoters of uh, science fiction in film. Uh, he was a uh, uh, one of the people who got Ray Bradbury started, Ray Harryhausen started. Ray Harryhausen left us uh, just a week ago, I think. Uh, in 1958, Forey Ackerman founded with James Warren a very, very popular magazine that has had a long life and is still going today called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And it was a very humorous look at movie monsters, uh, and kids really enjoyed it. I grew up with it, and I sure wasn't alone of those who went into the film business who uh, grew up with it and loved it because its fans, you know, include all the big people in science fiction and fantasy movies, certainly including Lucas and Spielberg and Rick Baker and Dennis Muren um, and, uh, you know, John Landis, Joe Dante. The list just goes on and on and on of the people who, oh, of course, um, Peter Jackson, of those who Ackerman inspired. He was a very... Uh, strange and wonderful man, had a great sense of humor, was very generous, and he lived in an 18-room house in the Las Feliz area of Los Angeles that he called the Acker Mansion, and it was absolutely filled in every single room, in every corner, every speck of every wall, and including the bathrooms, with some of the greatest memorabilia of the whole history of horror and science fiction films going back to the silent days, including lots of original relics from King Kong. This is a man that figures largely in the Life After Death Project because this is really how I got involved in this through the back door. I mean, I, I, was, a, I was one of, of Forey's boys. From the time I was a teenager, I entered a movie contest in Famous Monsters. I was a winner. I was getting national publicity in the magazine, and I, I was barely in high school at that point. And uh, then I went to Hollywood and befriended him, and we were friends for decades. He finally passed away December 4th, 2008. He was, a, he was an avowed atheist, correct? He said he was. He was a skeptic. He declared himself an atheist. Uh, he said he didn't believe in an afterlife. But for those who really knew him well, there was some waffling in his position. I mean, there was some ambiguity there. Um, he had written a fictional short story about uh, a boy who went to heaven and met up with his idol, Lon Chaney, who played the hunchback of Notre Dame, and the twist of the story was this, this boy was a hunchback, and he gets to heaven, and he is non-physical, doesn't have a body anymore, and he's freed of his deformity, and he finds happiness. That was fiction, of course. But, uh, there was an interesting sort of paranormal incident in Forey's family. His father, George Wyman, was the brilliant architect who designed the Bradbury Building in Los Angeles. Very famous building that figures prominently in Blade Runner. <clears throat> and uh, his grandfather wasn't going to take that job. But there was sort of a seance and a Ouija board reading, and 
the message that came through was, take the Bradbury building and you will succeed. And Fari kept that scrawled message and framed it, kept it in the living room, showed it to people, you know, forever. So for someone who said, you know, there's no afterlife, he doesn't believe in the paranormal, everything about his life dabbled in the paranormal. He said it was all fiction, but still there were these incidents. And, and did he not, towards the, near the end of his life, uh, say to his personal assistant, you know, if there is a big convention, Comic-Con convention or what have you, in the sky, and, I, and I'm able to communicate with you, much the way that Harry Houdini did, I guess, if there's a way, I will. Yeah, he said that. It wouldn't have been Comic-Con necessarily, although he did frequent Comic-Con. I was there with him, actually, one of the last Comic-Cons. Uh, we signed autographs for a movie that I made he was in called The Sci-Fi Boys. But no, it wouldn't have been a world science fiction convention. It would have been a heavenly <laughs> science fiction convention. And if he woke up to that, he said that when all the hoopla died down and he was uh, done palling around with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Peter Lorre and all his other great friends of the horror and science fiction films, if it was possible to do it, he'd uh, drop a line back here in the physical reality of Earth. You know, he said it with a big twinkle in his eye. And yet... Um, after he died, it was a few months later that a huge tribute was held for him in Hollywood at the Egyptian Theater, and that was the day that this all started. That was the day that things started that, that just took people by surprise. They couldn't explain away. It was Fari saying hello in all different kinds of ways, and when I first heard about it, the day of the tribute, I was one of the speakers there. I thought, you know, guys, this is really interesting. You know, what, what, what is this? One of, one of the Canadian filmmakers who was there. Oh, you're in Toronto. Well, he's Ian Johnston. He lives in Toronto. Yes, get, yes. Get him on your show. He, he and his friend Mike McDonald from Halifax were the first two. They'd made a film about Fari Ackerman. They came to the tribute. The film was going to be presented there. And before the tribute, they visited his crypt. At Forest, McDonald, <laughs> Forest Lawn. Forest Lawn. Yes, Forest. <laughs> he rapped on it the crypt three times, you know, Uncle Forey, are you there? And he never would have rapped on anybody else's crypt, but it was the kind of relationship everybody had with him. It was one of fun, you know, and uh, lightheartedness. But they got back to the room they were staying in, and two things happened with their computers, bang, 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 that made them absolutely convinced that he was knocking back to them. And I, I took this in, and I thought, you know, yeah, I, what do you do with that? You know, I mean, they, they were sincere. I believed it really happened. Uh, was it Fari? You know, it, it's a hard leap to make. I, I've been a skeptic on most things for most of my life until something happens that convinces me I can't be a skeptic anymore. And that's what happened to me about a week after the tribute. Something Listen, happened to me that was just impossible. Well, yeah, we're couldn't take couldn't a, happen, but it happened. We're going to take a time out here in a moment, and then we'll find out what happened uh, to you. Let me just ask you quickly before we go yeah. into the break, and that is, had you intended, before this amazing event happened to you one night down in New Mexico, had you intended to make a film about life after death? Or Oh, no. This oh, is, no. No, well, it wasn't in my, on my radar at all. No. I had a list of films I wanted to make. It wasn't, it wasn't even down there at the bottom. It wasn't there. Mm-mm. Unbelievable. And, and, just, and very quickly as well, the, the event that happened to these two Canadian filmmakers, they're in their hotel. Yeah. And uh, one of them has their laptop open. One of them has a laptop open, and 
he's, he's blogging on Facebook, trying right. to post pictures from the crypt, and you have to put in the code, the squiggle lines that come up, so that to prevent Facebook knows you're not a spammer. Right. Yeah. And what comes up is Ackerman 000. Black. He rapped on the crypt, knock, 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 and his name comes back on the computer as the code with three zeros. They say, it's, this is impossible. Is he really dead? And the other computer that was asleep at the time blurts out in a childlike voice, oh my gosh, no way. That's what happened. And that's just the beginning. That was the beginning. We'll come back uh, in conversation with Paul Davids, the Life After Death Project here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Paul Davids is with us, filmmaker. The uh, documentary is The Life After Death Project. Sort of think CSI meets uh, The Ghost Hunter. Four New York Times bestselling authors, three top science professors, three well-respected mediums make a leap into the unknown investigating astonishing evidence in the case of apparent after-death communication, ADC, from sci-fi luminary Forrest J. Ackerman. And uh, for you, I mean, so you, you, you speak with these two Canadian filmmakers who, along with you, had attended the, the tribute to the, uh, the late uh, Mr. Ackerman. Yeah, they have this... one of the speakers there, along, along with Guillermo del Toro and uh, J- John Landis and Peter Jackson. So they have this... from New Zealand via right. uh, video. Sure. I mean, Ackerman was uh, a, a hero to, to many uh, yeah. of, of filmmakers, obviously, including yeah. yourself. So, so after these two Canadian filmmakers have this kind of... They're staying, I believe, across the road from uh, Greyman's Theatre uh, at the time, and they just return from uh, Forest Lawn after you know tapping on Ackerman's uh, mausoleum, and uh, then they have this paranormal experience. And then how, how long was it after that? You were down in New Mexico, and you had yeah, I this... left Los Angeles uh, a day or two after the tribute and uh, headed for a vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was a week later that my world was turned upside down. So take us back to that, that evening. <clears throat> well, here was the incident. I mean, it was getting to be tax time. I printed out a document 24 pages long that had my phone calls, business meetings, all that stuff from the previous year, you know, go over and see if there's any tax deductions I hadn't considered. And I pressed the print command. Um, I was alone in the house. There was no one staying with me. My wife was back in L.A. on this trip. And I went to uh, one of the Indian casinos nearby for about an hour or so. Uh, When I came back, I collected the document. The ink was dry. It was normal. I tossed it on my bed and intended to crawl into bed and read through it and take notes. I went into the bathroom. I was there a few minutes. And when I came out and my eyes fell on the document, I immediately saw that it had been changed. It was different. There was moist black ink on it that was perfectly blacking out forwards. And uh, of the blackout, Two of the words you could still kind of read, uh, like translucent. But the other two words were absolutely 100% blacked out. Couldn't, couldn't tell what they were. <clears throat> now, I was in shock because there was no one there that could have done it. And this was not a case of a drip from the ceiling, you know, landing with some water on the document and spreading some ink. No, this it wasn't was, a it blotch. Was precise. It was like a message. It was precise. Right. I, I didn't know what, you know. Who could have done it? There was no one there. What did it mean? I mean, it, at first I felt scared and uh, a little bit threatened. Um, and uh, 
I didn't know I was going to go to sleep that night. Um, and then, um, you know, it was dry after about four or five minutes. The, the next morning, I took pictures of it. I, um, I had somebody I knew come in with an electromagnetic field reader, and we were checking out the house, and uh, we got these massive EMF readings from a mask that was on display in the room right, right next to where the ink thing happened. It was an African mask it was from Zimbabwe. Um, and that was really strange and hard to understand. There were no metal parts in it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I filmed that. Um, and uh, I really wanted to check out the ink. I felt I had some evidence of something. I didn't know what. And uh, I had a contact to uh, University of Indiana, the chairman of the chemistry department there, who's a world, he just happens to be a world-class expert in inks and paints and solvents, Dr. Jay Siegel. So I started with Dr. Siegel. I said, I said, look, I don't want to FedEx this to you. I'm not willing to take any chance it gets lost. I'm going to hand deliver it. I'd like to bring a video camera. I'd like to film what you do in the lab and see if you can explain this uh, away. Uh, and of course he expected he could explain it away. He can explain everything chemical. But it got really complicated. He started with gas chromatography. It didn't give him the answers he needed. Something really weird happened in his laboratory while he was doing it that, um, uh, you know, we discussed, you know, as it happened there. And then he decided to bring in another chemist. Uh, so he had me fly to New Jersey, to the College of New Jersey, Dr. John Allison, who got so involved in this project, it became a huge project for him for three years. Can you believe it? He involved classes in it, students. Uh, they used the electron microscope. They absolutely could not duplicate this ink blot. However, they tried. So they're matching this ink blot with all known paint, Solvent. pigments, solvents, yeah. other Everything. chemicals. Yeah. Now they, they they are able to figure out that the most of the chemistry of the ink blot. I mean, this gets a little technical, and I don't know if you re your, your listeners really want to, you can see the movie and get all the details. But what's interesting is that the ink, what, most of the chemistry matched the ink that, that, that was in the printer ink, which was a blue-black ink. But the problem was that there was so much more of it at that one particular spot, very, very evenly distributed, much more ink than was ever present in the words that were there. And... Um, it also had a couple, it had uh, silver in it that wasn't in the original ink, and it had barium chromate, wasn't there. Um, and they couldn't figure out how it could have been uh, applied or laid down so precisely. And they tried everything, as they say, for a couple of years. And, and the more John Allison tried, and, and this is where it gets really hairy, because the more poltergeist types of things started happening to him. And one of the incidents was caught right on film while I was there, where a clock chimed that hadn't worked in 10 years and has never worked again since. He had incident, an incident of pages that were in his dining room on a chair being scattered all across the floor while he was out of the room. There was no one who could have done it, you know, no open windows. <clears throat> and I want to say the plot really thickened when I found out later that the remodeled Acker Mansion... Safari, he was deceased, and somebody bought it. They remodeled it. They had tenants living there. 
I spoke to the tenants who told me the house was haunted, and they didn't know anything about Forrest J. Ackerman and the, you know, horror science fiction museum that had been there before. They they uh, they knew only the barest details. They told me about incidents that happened in the house, and one of them exactly matched what was happening to the scientist in New Jersey, with the pages being. This was the the musician artist who would leave the room yeah. when she came back. Her her, her yeah, papers were scattered <clears throat> at a music stand. But at this and, point, let me just back up um, yeah. and, and remind listeners, Paul Davids is with us, a filmmaker. The documentary is entitled The Life After Death Project. And, at this and can point, I tell them, let me just interject certainly. before you ask the question, Richard. I want them to know this was on Sci-Fi a couple nights ago. And uh, <clears throat> we only arranged that they were going to show it once. And our site is lifeafterdeathproject.com. It has everything about it there. And the sequel, which is coming out with the DVD. So there's two movies and all the bonus features and things. And I, I really would like to just take a moment to say a word to encourage your listeners to check that out there or at Amazon, and please do not support the piracy sites. You can't imagine the death knell that the piracy sites mean to the independent producers like me who independently finance their projects, work on them for years, maybe get a channel like Sci-Fi to show it, and the moment it's there... There's a thousand people there who have no respect for copyright, and they all think that they can run away with it. And it, you know, it just leaves us, you know, with no way to recoup. And I, just please, if you've been supporting them, the torrent sites and that kind of thing, please stop. You know, for understand it from our point of view, or people like me who make these interesting films on controversial subjects and push the envelope, you know, won't be able to make them anymore. Exactly. And that said, let's get back to uh, your questions. Yes, please. Uh, give us the, the website again where people can... lifeafterdeathproject.com. Excellent. Don't okay. forget the word project. Now, this ink, I don't want to call it a blot because, as you say, it was precise. Mm-hmm. This ink line. Mm-hmm. At this point, I mean, bef- you, you hadn't made necessarily the connection between this, this an ink... An Ackerman. An Ackerman. Explain what led... No, I was more concerned about a possible connection between the mask and Ackerman, because Ackerman was a collection of all kinds of masks, right. and that African mask looked like something out of his favorite movie, King Kong. And, um, but if this was a message, at first I didn't get it at all. I, I looked up what the words were, and it, I, it was, you know, spoke to Joe Amodi. It was somebody I'd had one conversation with in my life, uh, about possibly distributing my film, Jesus in India. It didn't happen. That was the day I spoke to him. I took that note down, and I, I didn't have any further business contact with him uh, or, or anything. There was another little line on that front page that said, left message for Joe Modi a day or two before. And whoever crossed this out deliberately avoided left message for, and, and, and crossed out, you know, blotted out, spoke to Joe Modi. So the issue had to do with speaking with someone, not leaving a message and, you know, the key to this that just jolted me, because it made so much sense to me, because I knew Fari so well, and I knew his sense of humor, and you have to understand, he was a punster. He was a master at wordplay. He could twist words, make jokes, where he would find words within words, and surprise you, because he would see things in words you never did. And, for example, one of his things was to take a word where there would be another word in, in the middle syllable, so if on the cover of Famous Monsters he wanted to say spectacular issue, it wouldn't just say spectacular, it would say spect, and then ack, A-C-K, in big letters, and then you lar. 
because they called him Ack. It was a nickname, Ackerman, Ack. And he did this again and again. I looked through things he had signed, things he had written, things in Famous Monsters. I found at least 15 examples of this, that this was his style, kind of his humor, his signature. Well, it, it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> I was calling up his caretaker for the last 10 years of his life, the person who was closest to him. Uh, who answered to all of his needs and kept his life being a dignified life to the end. He was there when he died, in fact. Yeah. His name is Joe Moe from Hawaii. Loyal, as loyal as anybody could be. And the reason I called Joe was I thought maybe he'd have some old Fari manuscripts that would show how Fari crossed out words when he was writing an article. And before I could even ask him about that... He said, Paul, I had the strangest experience after the tribute. A few days after the tribute, I said, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it was as though Fari came and spoke to me. And he said, uh, he said it, it, you know, some people maybe call these things waking dreams, lucid dreams. He said, it was right before I woke up and opened my eyes in the morning. I, my, if it was a dream, I was seeing my own room. And Fari was there, and he came into my room, and then he told me what Fari said to him, which was Fari's funny way of thanking him for the tribute and telling him it was, you know, the ninth wonder of the world. Not, not the eighth wonder, because the eighth wonder is King Kong, if you're in the... In right, the right, business. that's right. Oh, by the way, Fari's the guy that came up with the term sci-fi. That was another one of ah, okay. contributions. But, so, Joe said... It was like he was really there. And then suddenly I just, you know, shake my head, open my eyes. I'm looking at the same thing, the scene in my bedroom, and there's no Fari there. Everything else is the same. And he didn't know what to do with it because he's a skeptic. I mean, I think he's been a member of skeptic societies, and, and it's the way he thinks. And he knew Fari didn't believe in life after death, and, you know, he didn't have any reason to either. And I look, you know. At that moment, I just spoke to Joe out Modi, and I was in shock because I realized Joe Moe's name is right there in the middle, middle syllable of Modi. And it suddenly dawned on me, Fari would do that. If he wanted to tell me he spoke to Joe Moe, <laughs> he'd cross out, spoke to Joe Modi, and expect me to get it. Right, he and he has Joe to work, Mo. and he, if he's trying to communicate with you, he's got to work with the available material, so he and sees... It, on- yeah, and do it in a way in which... I would get it, but you see, it was a puzzle that I had to figure out, and he expected me to figure it out, rightly so. I think it probably took me longer to figure it out than he, he's, <laughs> he's probably thinking, come on, Paul, what's the matter with you? You don't get it yet? But and he it, didn't cross out the, the, the line earlier on that oh, said left, left message, message with no, Joe. He said no, spoke. No, no. So you see, it was precise and it was definite. Now, what I'd like your listeners to understand is this was the beginning. That was the first week of, I haven't counted the number of incidents that have happened, and I don't know whether you call them paranormal. Some of them are really improbable synchronicities, and some of them are just really, really strange things that shouldn't happen but did and relate to Fari. A couple of them were, again, impossible things, like the inkblot, things that just there's no physical explanation for how those things happen. And they, they kept happening to me at unexpected times over the course of the years and and even within the last few weeks again 
some of the most spectacular things have happened. We'll take a time we, out here, uh, uh, Paul. Yeah. When we come back, maybe we can touch on the uh, the article you wrote for Fate magazine. Okay. And uh, then we'll get into the science of this and how you went down and uh, took all this information to uh, Professor Gary Schwartz at the University of Arizona. And this yeah. is where the science really comes in. And this stuff is compelling, the yeah. scientific evidence for this. Paul David's The Life After Death Project right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Let me beg your indulgence for just one second before we get back to my uh, conversation with the filmmaker responsible for the Life After Death Project. If you could, just to take a moment at some point and uh, log on to uh, Indiegogo.com. That's the uh, the crowdfunding platform, Indiegogo, and check out uh, my beloved uh, my beloved's Mighty Aphrodite's uh, campaign there, uh, Adopt a Greek Olive Tree. Adopt a Greek Olive Tree on Indiegogo and uh, would appreciate it. All right. Uh, Paul Davids is with us. The Life After Death Project, the first paranormal biography, the afterlife story of Forrest J. Ackerman, a founding father of Hollywood science fiction who refuses to rest in peace. Now, at some point, you were asked to write a, uh, um, an article for uh, the legendary Fate magazine. And uh, tell us what happened, Paul. I want to do that, but I want to interject something since you're the conspiracy show that has to do with another article first, if I may. Please do. <clears throat> this week, just a couple of days ago, Huffington Post wrote uh, an article about this, about the Life After Death Project. Very comprehensive. Written by um, Lee Spiegel. Yes, he's terrific. And Lee spoke to uh, uh, the science people involved, and uh, he did link to the scientific uh, journals that had published papers. It was done extremely well. And he, he approached the science department of Huffington Post to try to get it picked up as a science story and was turned down. And, uh, you know, they just uh, uh, flatly refused. And it's the old way of thinking about this, that since it can't be true, uh, it isn't. And it sounds sort of tabloid. And, you know, do they prove it beyond any doubt? Forget about reasonable doubt. Is it absolutely proven? And if it isn't, Put it in the weird news section. <laughs> so yeah, that's so unfortunate. You know, yeah, the, the I, thing I that I do want to encourage your your listeners to go to the Huffington Post, look at the article. It's under weird news. It's a really good piece about this, and it'll fill in some of the things we might not cover here. But it's um, it's unfortunate that you know, just like with UFOs, it's the way things are. Well, I know that that Michael Shermer is uh, featured in the in the film. I, I've met Michael a few times at his uh, office in Pasadena, and, and yeah. included him in my television show. God bless Michael Shermer, but th- that guy, I don't think he believes in air. I mean, I think he would argue against the existence of of air. Uh, but the you thing know, is, you know, what's funny? If you read his biography, he started out as a fundamentalist Christian. I mean, he was going to a college for for that, and then he had a, a massive rejection against all of that, and turned around and. Threw it all out, threw out the baby with the bathwater. And he thinks in his book, Why People Believe Weird Things, that because he's able to um, learn how to give a cold re- reading as though he's a psychic and fool somebody, because it's possible to be a charlatan and an imposter and get somebody to play along, that that means that there is no truth to any of it. And I'm convinced he's absolutely wrong and that they're they're missing real data that is of 
scientific value. Well, they, so, they say, show me the scientific data. When you show it to them, then they question the protocols and the way this experiment was being done. And, but wait till, the, the people, uh, wait till people listening to this program watch your film and see the, the, the mediums that uh, took on this case. Oh, it was extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It came but, through Gary Schwartz. But you wanted to hear about Fate Magazine. I'll yes. tell them very quickly. Uh, Fate Magazine wanted me to write an article about the strange case of Forrest J. Ackerman for an issue they had dealing with artist Frank R. Paul. He was one of the top pulp cover artists of those magazines. Wonderful science fiction imagery, and Fari Ackerman was a collector of his work. So they wanted me to write an article, and I did, telling them uh, that um, there seemed to be evidence that uh, he'd been heard from since he passed away. But when the article came back from the printer, it wasn't the way I wrote it. There on the first page, about three paragraphs down, <laughs> sort of reminds you of the ink blot. this huge typographical error that goes on for uh, sentences. And what it is is it breaks away from what I had actually written, and it suddenly says, um, I'm trying to remember the exact words, but I think it was essentially um, the uh, obliterating ink. Two levels of opacity spoke to Joe Amodi. The obliterating ink, it repeats again, two levels of opacity, which means it was two different levels of blackness on the ink, spoke to Joe Amodi. Repeating it again and again, and then it goes back into the story as I actually wrote it. Well, it, you know, the first reaction you get when you open the magazine where you've written an article, you see something like that, is to say, oh, come on. You know, they couldn't have proofread it better than that. They've got this big mistake. Nobody's going to understand. Not Phyllis. She's I pretty fastidious. Realize, She's pretty fastidious. Not a mistake. Yeah. I, 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 I called up the publisher, Phyllis Galdi, and she was flabbergasted. She said, look, we had, we had two regular proofreaders and two editors. It wasn't like that when it went to the press. So it's, it's again, another link in the chain of these strange things, again, that point, that point to Ackerman. All right, we'll come back and uh, talk about uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz and his amazing work uh, on the survival of consciousness after death down at the uh, University of Arizona and uh, the fact that you took this information down to uh, Gary Schwartz and uh, some of the tests that he ran. Absolutely compelling evidence for life after death. The Life After Death Project filmmaker Paul Davids joins us here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Quick programming note coming up on the weeks ahead here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll uh, speak with, or I'll speak with, uh, one of the founders of the Merlin Project. This is a, an amazing uh, piece of technology that utilizes the uh, the Internet to, uh, to make predictions, future uh, trends and so forth. Also... Self-described crackpot historian Adam Gorightly will be here to talk about some of the mysterious deaths of some famous comedians over the years. Everyone from uh, uh, George Carlin, uh, Lenny Bruce, uh, on and on. And we'll speak with uh, a whistleblower from inside the World Bank. This is senior legal counsel, a senior legal counsel with the World Bank turned whistleblower now facing criminal prosecution. Uh, because she dared speak out about what's going on inside the World Bank. Uh, right now, a few moments remain with Paul David's filmmaker as we discuss his latest project, uh, an amazing documentary, The Life After Death Project. All right, so you you uh, approach uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz down at the University of Arizona, um, who runs the um, who's the director of the Laboratory for Advances in Consciousness and Health. Uh, yeah. Tell me about what he made of, of, of uh, when you first approached him and told him about what was going on, what did he say? 
Well, he, he asked me every question he could think of to try to ascertain the credibility of it and, uh, and my credibility. And then uh, he, he invited me down. I asked him for an interview for the film. And I learned from him at that time, he was doing research in two different directions related to life after death. One direction had to do with using mediums who were, he calls it double blind, ex, uh, double blind experiments, where um, they, they have absolutely no foreknowledge of, of, of who it is you're trying to get uh, a message from. And he was also doing work with computer software he was designing to facilitate contact between this world and the next that could be measurable through very, very subtle energies like gamma rays and, and very subtle levels of light in pitch black through attempting a communication and seeing if there was a meaningful timed response. And he has been successful in that work. And it has uh, he's had a peer-reviewed paper published about it. Uh, his experimental protocols have all been approved by the university. And uh, he's accomplished a lot, and he's moving on. Put that in your pipe, Michael Shermer. <laughs> but we started with one of the mediums who had done many readings for him in Tucson, Arizona. Her name is Catherine Yunt. She's been in a couple of documentary films, um, not necessarily as a medium. Her background is she's a math teacher, but she has this ability to bring forth... Um, information and, and, and it's very strange you don't know how 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 could she know these things it's as though she really is speaking with uh, with someone unseen with me he called her on the spur of the moment and said look there's a man here I'd like to bring to you he's gonna have a video camera he'd like to tape this I'm not gonna mention his name there's somebody he'd like to hear from and see if that person could come through you and we got there, I set up, and at first uh, we weren't even going to tell the name of the person I wanted to contact, even the first name, but, but and Gary said his name was Forrest because she thought it would help to know the name. And over the course of about an hour, she gave a lot of information that just hit the nail on the head. It was very, very specific to Forrest Jackerman's um, personality, his sense of humor. Um, it wasn't perfect, and the best information didn't necessarily come right at the beginning. It sort of warmed, warmed into it. And the things that she came up with, though, um, as I say, they just it was so specific to Fari, there were a lot of them. And it amazed me. It was many months later when there was a psychic who's well-known in Israel, who was coming to the University of Arizona to meet with Gary, that he invited me back. I flew in again. We did a, a reading with Orit Ishyemini Tomer, is her name. And her reading was absolutely fantastic, too. You told her nothing. Nothing, no. She, she, would, she, she pulled out of the air, I think his name, the one you want to talk to, his name, does it, should it begin with an F? She says, an F or a P? She says, in Hebrew, I can't, I, you know, I'm singing Hebrew, same letter, um, it's one or the other. And we said, well, it's an F. And she went from there. And she brought out that he, he, 
there was money from writing, that he was involved in publishing a, 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 a funny magazine, um, a strange magazine, you know, that parents didn't necessarily like it, parents didn't necessarily approve of their children following, following after him. She said she saw this collection that he had of funny little dolls, she said. She didn't have the, the word for monster, you know, her English wasn't perfect, but she said strange little dolls, and she said, some of them, she says, I'm, it's like Yoda, that kind of thing, which is, of course, exactly right. And then she, I asked, well, what about the women in his life? And she says, there's one woman. One woman in particular, it's his wife. She's the one person who knows everything about him. Uh, her name begins with an, with an M. Okay? Well, as far as I knew, his wife's name didn't begin with an M. She was Wendane. So an M upside down, but it, it's not an M. Wendane Ackerman. Everybody knew her as Wendy. But then I learned after this, Wendane was not her real name. And we had to hunt for her real name. And there were archives that I had obtained at the estate sale, the estate auction, Forrest Jackman. Uh, some of his binders of writings that went way back. And his wife's real name was Malka, Matilda, sometimes called Mondell. Three versions of her original name, and they all began with an M. Wow. So where, where did Orit Ishiemeni Tomer get this from, you know, if not from Fari. She sure didn't get it by picking my brain. And she described him as kind of a, a kind of a strange little child. A childlike. She said she said he has two sides to his personality. He that he, he he's he's a childlike with a strange laughter. He'll laugh at things that other people won't even laugh about. They might find not find them funny. That's very true. And she said, but on the other side he also has a very serious side. And that's true too. I mean he was a a scholar. Of science fiction, uh, she talked about his wordplay as well. Did she not? Um, the the one who really talked about his wordplay was Catherine Yunt, and she she got right at that um, uh, at uh, play on words as being his type of humor. That he had a very abrupt kind of pokey sense of humor that involved wordplay. And she said, he's telling me I can't see the forest for the trees right now. Which is exactly something that Ack would say, he right? Would say, you know, he's forest. Uh, so you need to see the movie to appreciate it. Now, when the skeptics heard about it, of course, what do I hear from them right away? Right away, they said, oh, you know, were these like, did you see like 15 skeptics and these were uh, 15 mediums and these are the best? Yeah, what did you leave out? Did you, what did you leave out? What, what did you leave on the cutting room floor? And look, each one of these interviews was an hour. The whole movie is an hour and 45 minutes. I'm not going to have their whole hour. Of course, I, I cherry-picked the best stuff. But the best stuff is representative of what took place during the whole hour. And, you know, I would be a good judge of this. I'm not trying to make this be true. If I had been disappointed with either of these mediums or felt that they were off-base, I would have been the first one to say so. I would have turned to Gary and say, this is a big miss, Gary. This is a flop. And Gary, of course, didn't know whether most of these things related to Forrest or not. He'd never met Forrest. He didn't know. He had to hear from me that they were right about this and this and this and this and this and this and on and on. And, of course, at the core of this is the fact that there have been probably around 20 more really strange incidents over the last four years. 
a few of them taking place really recently, like right when we heard that sci-fi was going to broadcast the movie. That very day, the weirdest thing happened to me. I have a face mask of Fari that I got at the estate auction that I keep in my office. I have weird science fiction collectibles in my office. I'm a producer, and I have the alien from our movie Roswell that we made for Showtime. Great movie, by the way. It's, yeah, it's, in, it, it's really cool. It's in, a, it's in this display case. And on top of the case, I've had Fari's face sitting there for four years since I got this thing. It has never moved. I've never touched it. I've never moved it. But I went out for lunch that day. I left my house for about an hour and a half. The house is locked. My wife is at her job at Universal, at the studio. No one is in my house. And when I come back and go into my office, the first thing I see is that Fari's face has moved. It's moved 10 feet. It's now on the floor across the room, buried in all my computer wires by my hard drives. And someone said jokingly, you know, I think he's trying to tell you he's getting his, his nose into your computer and he's communicating with you, you know, through technology. Maybe. But there was nothing to move that mask. And at the same time, I get back and my computer goes down. I have to reboot everything. And when it had gone down, I didn't have things related to Fari Ackerman on the screen. When it booted back up, on each screen is an open folder filled with files about Ackerman and his magazine, Famous Monsters. Wow. And while I was out for that hour and a half, a car swerves in front of me with a vanity license plate that says, AM loves FM. And FM is, you know, Famous Monsters is a big sign in my office. Come meet the editor of, Fam- of FM, Famous Monsters. And I said jokingly to the current editor of Famous Monsters magazine, Ed Blair, because it's still being published by Phil Kim, you can still find it. It's, it's, it's really cool. I said to Ed, you know, I know FM, Famous Monsters, you know, AM. He said Ackerman, AM, or Ackermonster, loves FM, of course. All of this happened in that same hour. And again and again and again, the list is long. So look, the skeptics want to I, saw, I read that somebody who, who runs a column uh, online that's called I Doubt It. He, he had a flash news thing saying, look, just got this story, Huffington Post, you know, printed, did this article about friends of Fari Ackerman say he's speaking to them from beyond, he's talking to them from beyond the grave. He says, didn't have time to get to it tomorrow, but I'm working on a headline for this, and I doubt it. You know, well, this is what you get from these people. Right. You know, the thing they, the scientists or skeptics, skeptics will say is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, and I've no, got the extraordinary evidence. I've got you it do. from three you universities. Do. I've got it from electron microscope work. I've got, look, wonderful things sometimes come in very small packages. And in this case, the message that kicked it all off was really small. Someone else might have missed it entirely or just shrugged it away. But scientists, they study molecules. They study atoms. They study subatomic particles. They study very, very faint messages coming to us. I don't mean messages, but you know from from exploding pulsars and stars that are four billion years old coming to us very, very faint. So very subtle things. This inkblot, by comparison to those things, is huge. 
it's got a lot of molecules. It's got a lot you can study. Right. And, and it's there. And we you haven't even talked about it. we haven't even talked about some of the other experiments that uh, Prof- uh, Dr. Schwartz conducted, um, which we see in real time yes. on the movie as he's communicating with Forrest J. Ackerman. Unbelievable. Yeah. Quickly, last question. Before you made this film, what was your what was your opinion about life after death? I just felt maybe nobody knows. We can never know. I loved reading Paramahansa Yogananda and his stories about reincarnation, and I thought, you know, could it be true? But I didn't believe in any of the past life regression or just big unanswered questions, and I didn't dwell on it. And now? Oh, I think this is, this is real, that, that consciousness survives, and so does personality. So even can a sense of humor, and that contact between our world and that other world can happen, and we can amplify it. And that's what Gary Schwartz is working on doing now at the University of Arizona. Congratulations. Great film, The Life After Death Project. And again, where should people go? Please go to lifeafterdeathproject.com. You can sell it there. Oh, put in, we have a coupon code, L-A-D-P. We'll save you some postage, or it's at Amazon. Uh, and it's going to be there with the sequel, coming to you with the sequel and bonus features with Ray Bradbury, Rick Baker. I put the okay. whole package together. Excellent. Don't go to the piracy sites. I hate them. Excellent <laughs> work, Paul. And we'll talk again, I hope. Thank you. Loved it. Good night. Good night. Tim Spreen, thank you. Back next week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.